Trustful surrender to divine providence. That's what holiness is. He must increase, I must decrease. Welcome to Every Knee Shall Bow, your weekly Catholic podcast on evangelization. This is Mike Gomer-Gormley, and I'm not joined by Dave Van Vickles. I did a Steubenville conference, which is why my voice is pretty hoarse and awful. What you're going to hear is a talk that I gave based on Brandon Vaught's book, published by Word on Fire, called Return, How to Draw Your Child Back to Church. It is a wonderful book. We interviewed Brandon Vaught a few weeks ago. And if you remember in that episode, I said to Brandon that we were going to do a series in my church for adult faith formation on his book. And so this is the first of six classes that we are doing. And I've chopped up the talk to try to fit it in our EKSB time limit, but I really want to encourage you to get the book and to go through it and maybe go through it with a group of people, especially if you've experienced friends or loved ones who have left the church. Most people in that room are there because of their children, but not everyone. Some it's neighbors, some it's parents, some it's siblings or nieces and nephews, but I can tell you this, everyone in that room of 35, 45 people at one point or another was choked up because of how much they long to bring these people home to the church. Once again, I want to thank Ascension Press for being so patient with us trying to create these podcasts with our crazy lives. Part one is to understand why they're leaving, which is what we're going to go through today. We actually don't have to wonder. We don't have to wonder at all. There have been multiple universities and dioceses that have sponsored multiple surveys, sociological reviews, all this stuff to ask the question, why'd you leave the Catholic Church? So we're going to go over these. The problem is we often don't hear why they leave, and we come up with our own reasons to kind of fill in the gap with those reasons, but we need to be attentive to what the Lord is saying and what they are saying, right? That makes sense, right? So part of today, one of the skills that we're going to develop is what I call evangelical listening, right? You might know evangelical preaching, but evangelical listening is 10 times more effective. God gave us two ears and one mouth. That's a good ratio when talking about the faith, right? Over and over again, you look at our Lord's example in the Bible, and what does he do? He is constantly asking questions. Constantly, like the Pharisees come up like, give us a sign that you have the right to cleanse the temple. And he's like, all right, I'll answer your question. If you can answer my question, who gave John the Baptist the authority uh, to baptize? And there it's like, well, they thought he just made it up, but the people thought God and that he was a legit prophet. So if we, if we say what we really believe, we're going to look like idiots in front of the people. And Jesus is like, yeah, because that's what you live for. That's what you live for. And so you're not actually going to challenge me. You're going to walk away because I just revealed to you your own heart. That's what questions do. They reveal to people their own hearts. And I'll tell you this much, right? For, uh, you know, you had said your atheistic daughter. For, for many people who call themselves atheists, they have actually done surveys of this group too. And it's hilarious because atheists, literally, atheos means no God. But many of them will say, well, like, I believe in like a God. I'm not the God of the Bible, but it's like, well, then you're not an atheist, right? But so this is, the reason why I say that is, there's a lot of confusion, but more than confusion, there's vagueness. There's vagueness. And a lot of it is how we handed on the faith, 
how we've communicated the faith over the last several decades, the last century. And so what we want to do is recover clarity in how we evangelize, how we share the gospel, what we believe. That is very important. But what we believe is not exhaustive in its importance. What is the absolute most important thing in drawing your kids, your loved ones, your friends, your neighbors back to church or to church for the first time, the most important thing is your personal sanctity. The most important thing is your personal sanctity. You becoming holy, right? You becoming holy. There is no shortcut to holiness, right? You can't take a couple pills. You can't go for like a couple yoga sessions and then you're just all of a sudden perfect, right? There's no mechanism. It's a relationship of ever widening amounts of your surrender because your surrender to God equals trust. Trustful surrender to divine providence. That's what holiness is. He must increase, I must decrease. You want to talk about drawing your kids back to church. I think it was Emerson who said, if you want to draw a crowd, light yourself on fire. People will come just to watch the blades, right? So if you want, we got to be spiritual pyromaniacs here. You ever been at a bonfire? Everyone could be having the best conversations ever, and all they're doing is staring at the fire the whole time. Like, oh yeah, everything is great. I love it, right? It's mesmerizing. We want you to be consumed by the fiery love of God. Right? The book of Hebrews says, uh, our God is a consuming fire. Scott Hahn, my professor, he used to say that if a saint in heaven were ever to be plopped into the middle of hell, they'd freeze to death. Right? Because the fire of God burns hotter than the fires of hell. Because this is what love is meant to be in its fullness. So we want you to fall fully in love with God. That's what we want for you. That's why I'm here. I'm not even here to get kids back to church. I'm here to make sure you come back to church with your whole heart, your whole mind, your whole strength, everything that makes you you. So let me ask you a question before we go any further. Let me ask you a personal question, right? And I don't need you to answer it in front of anyone. I need you to answer it in front of God, right? Are you holy his? Are you holy? Because that means you're wholly his. You're completely his. Everything in your heart has to be given over to him. Everything. Your money, right? Now, I can serve as his proxy in that regard. Just kidding. But everything in your life has to be given over to him. And now, let me tell you, let me just be a little honest and vulnerable with y'all. I struggle, because everyone loves vulnerability, right? I struggle with the whole finance and trusting God with money, right? I'm like, okay, I work for the church. There's not a glass ceiling. It's made of cement, right? Like, this is it. Like, this, this is, this is when, when I got married, my wife literally, Father Tom did the vows. He says, for richer, for poorer, for better, for worse, the death of you part. And my wife goes, for richer, or for poorer, on the altar, for Father So that, it was funny. It was funny. I'll give her that. But I was like, oh, girl, you marrying a church worker, right? Like, <laughs> so I say this because it is often very difficult for me to trust God with money. It's very difficult for me to do that. I would share the story. I started doing a traveling speaking stuff where I'd make some side income. And I went and someone gave us a, a testimony about tithing. And I was like, okay, okay, you know, maybe I should. And this guy was a layman. He, would like, he had like 400 kids, right? Like all this stuff. And I was struggling and trusting God with money. So I go to this event. I'm at Ave Maria University in Ave Maria, Florida. I'm leading this whole thing. I'm the host of a youth conference, about six, 800 people. And I remember thinking, well, I can't tithe this money because I won't have enough, like giving $100, if they pay me $1,000, giving $100, like, it's too much. I need that money in order to pay my bills. My wife was now a stay-at-home wife. I was a middle school youth minister at the time uh, down in Sugarland and stuff. So I was like, oh, no, what am I going to do? So I decided not to tithe. I was like, I'll do it later. And then, wouldn't you know it, I added up my food in the airport. 
I added up uh, at one at one part. There's a pub late on Saturday night. The band and the speakers all got together in the pub. Wouldn't you know it? I spent ninety eight dollars on myself of money I couldn't possibly part with. Right, so I had tithed. Unto myself, right? Food for the stomach and stomach for the food, uh, St. Paul says. And I just thought, like, wow, okay. Okay, this is, like, such a blatant conviction that I don't trust God with my money. So I say this. What in your life, and I, again, I don't want you answering. <laughs> Sometimes people get a little carried away, and they're like, oh, gosh, my sex life. And you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Actually, tell me more. No, so I want you to think about this. Where do we hesitate in our trustful surrender to God's divine providence? Where do we hesitate, right? Our relationships. Maybe it's our relationship with our kids or our parents. Maybe, maybe it's our inability to forgive our parents. And so when we left home, we said, well, I'm not going to be like them. But it's still a reaction to them, isn't it? Right? So what is it within us that I need to yield, that I need to give up so that Christ can be the king of even that part of my own life and my own heart? Right? This is not like fuzzy emotional stuff. It's because we use words like love and heart. It is very difficult. You have to have a lot of courage to confront the dark places of your past, your history, your relationships, your lives, your sins, the things you do that you don't admit even to your spouse or to your friends or anyone else. Right? This is the part of confrontation. It's called repentance. Repentance means I'm not perfect and I ain't finished yet. Right? If you can acknowledge that you're not finished yet, then that means you're on the way. Right? If you think you've got it, <laughs> we got bigger problems. Right? So there's this attitude of humility that uh, I was just talking with this woman. She wants to start a lay Franciscan movement. Uh, she's a lay Franciscan. She wants to start like a prayer group here in our church. And she was like, I was watching you give your little saint talks, you know, on the, for the, all the relics that we're getting. And every time you talked about a Franciscan saint, I could see you're, 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 you're so joyful. And that's one of the charisms of the Franciscan spirit. And I was like, oh, yeah, I love Franciscans. I love St. Francis of Assisi. Go back and forth. And she goes, but you know, the hard part for you is the other charism is not just joy, but also humility. And I was like, oh, yeah, I can't do that. Right. So, uh, <laughs> and she started laughing. I was like, you know me too well. I'm the best guy I've met yet. Um, so what we want to do is we want to confront our hearts with honesty. And let's be honest, sometimes it's hard to do that. Okay? Confront your life, your heart, and say, yeah. And it was 95% the other person's fault, but I'll own that 5%. Right? Go through your heart, go through your life, and say, I repent. Jesus Christ, in your name, I'm sorry. And then, here it is. When we hit those strings, those threads that go from our lives to the person that we're here for, right? Your daughter, your father, you know, whatever it might be, those threads that go out. Maybe there is something I need to repent from and ask their forgiveness for, right? That becomes very difficult, right? I am learning that as a parent, it is very difficult to show my weakness to my kids, right? And I know I have messed up royally. Let my anger get control over me. Let my fear of money guilt trip. I, I like guilt trip. Why do I guilt trip little kids? I don't know why. Well, it's fun, but why do I do this? And so what do I have to do? I come to my kids and it's so embarrassing. It's so annoying, but it's so good to just sit there and say, daddy was wrong. I'm sorry, right? To actually have them see their parents repent. And so I want to encourage us right now. We're going to take a moment. And we're just going to do a little examination of conscience, okay? All right? Come, Holy Spirit, come and kindle within us the fire of your love. Holy Spirit, you know that I am not finished. You know there is maybe my emotional issues, my anger, 
my lack of anger where that should be there, my overzealousness, my ability just to steamroll over others, Lord Jesus, I repent. My forgetfulness, my inconsiderateness, Lord Jesus, I repent. All those times when I could have loved you more, Jesus, I repent. All those times where I could have loved the people you put in my life, Lord Jesus, I repent. All those times where I tried to micromanage the universe, Lord Jesus, I repent. All those times of picking up burdens that I had no business carrying, Lord, I repent. Of my anger, of my lust, of my greed, I repent. Of my inability to say you and always, I repent. Jesus, I trust you because you went to that cross even before I said I'm sorry so that it could be possible for me to say I am sorry. And you rose from the grave even before I said I'm sorry so that when I say it, I know that I will not receive condemnation for there is no longer condemnation for anyone who is in Christ Jesus. So Jesus, I trust in you. Jesus, I trust in you. Jesus, I trust in you. And in your matchless name we pray. Amen. All right. Again, I want to say I am so happy to have you all here with us tonight. Let's journey together. Understanding their misconceptions, common reasons why people leave the church. The following role in respondents' departure from the Catholic Church. So there are multiple surveys that is out there. I think this first one comes from the Diocese of Springfield partnering with Benedictine University, and they did this survey. 68% say their spiritual needs were not being met. So if you feel like the situation is hopeless and your kid fits into this category or maybe several of these categories, realize they left because they have spiritual needs and they desire them to be filled, okay? 67% say they lost interest. Uh, Another phrase is they just drifted away. 56% say there were too many money requests. Thank God we don't do that. I remember one day we had just started the Greater Glory of God campaign and I was walking out of the church and I'm like, I helped make the video. We got all this cool stuff going and I was so proud and I walked out and this lady goes, again, you're asking for money. And I was like, I know, but we want a building. Okay, so I know. I mean, it's not like it's going to me. right? Okay, anyway. Uh, 48% say they no longer believe. Right. That, that's the one that hurts, right? That's the one that, it's not like, oh, I, just, I, did, I didn't have a connection and so I drifted or whatever. That's the one that you're like, ah, ah, okay. They report a dissatisfaction with the atmosphere. It's too hot, it's too cold, but morally. 40, 38% say the Catholic Church is too ritualistic. I don't know where they get that from. 36% say it's too formal. 36% report not enjoying the music. A different survey with far more respondents found similar results. 71 just gradually drifted from the religion, all right? 71% when asked, why do you stop going to the Catholic Church and no longer identify as Catholic? I just drifted away. I just drifted away. 65% stopped believing in the religion's teachings, That's one that we're going to spend um, some time on in order to understand people's objections and whatnot going forward. 43% say their spiritual needs were not being met. Again, we hear that phrase. 29% were unhappy with teachings about the Bible. It doesn't really break down exactly what that means. Does that mean traditional Christian doctrine or we weren't being biblical enough in our preaching or whatnot? 
Uh, 26% reported dissatisfaction with the atmosphere of worship services. Just the fact that it says worship services breaks my little liturgical heart, but whatever. 18% reported dissatisfaction with clergy at the congregation. 10% say they found a religion that they liked more. Okay, now, do any of these resound with the people in your life? Yeah, uh, many leave the church intentionally for spiritual reasons, or they drift away somewhat unintentionally. Many people, when they get to freshman year, right, they go, they get connected with the life of the college, you know, they're living all this stuff, and maybe they don't get connected with St. Mary's and College Station, or your local Newman Center, or your Catholic Outreach Center, whatever it might be, and all of a sudden they find that the red solo cup lifestyle, if you know what I mean, is more attractive than going to church on Sunday. I can't imagine why, but some people feel that way, right? Like it's a draw, and where there are friends, you wanna be with your friends, especially when you're young. That is very uh, attractive. Many, however, also rebel against the church's sexual teachings and are unhappy with the church's teachings on homosexuality, abortion, birth control, divorce, etc. This is often due to a misunderstanding or misconception of how and why the church teaches what she does, but we'll talk about that later on as we go through specific objections. One of the biggest problems that I've seen in the church as a nerd who loves moral theology and have many, many leather-bound books on moral theology is moral theology is very poorly communicated, and it's very hard to talk about a complex object in 15 minutes from a pulpit. And then, let's be honest, a 15-minute sermon, people are going to be more angry that it was 15 minutes as to whether or not it taught the truth. It's seven minutes, Father. Seven, right? So part of this is a lack of access to good, solid moral formation. I often tell people who are parents of kids who are in high school, oftentimes kids rebel against church teaching not because of the what. They reject the what because they don't know the why behind the what. They get the conclusion, but they think, oh, that's stupid celibate man in Rome. What does he know about LGBT? What does he know about abortion? What does he know about euthanasia or whatever it might be? But they don't understand the why behind it, right? At all, at all. I have asked people so many times, well, why do you think the church teaches that? Right, again, I'm doing my evangelical questioning, but I had a little smugness. But uh, I, why do you think the church teaches that? And they'll be like, well, you know, they're all celibate bunch of men running everything. And I'm like, do you think that's why the church teaches that abortion is a grave sin? Like, do you think that's why the church teaches that? So as we begin to go through this course, you will find that a lot of people have massive amount of assumptions and misconceptions as to what or why the church teaches. They might know the church is against gay marriage, but it's not because the church hates gays, right? But I hear that all the time from young people, all the time. In fact, one of the anecdotes in the chapter, they talked about how a, a Catholic professor at a Catholic university gave out an index card and said, write that to her class on the first day, and said, write down everything you know that the church teaches or about Christianity. And she said, almost none of them came back talking about Jesus. But a lot of the information on the cards were, well, the church hates gays and is against abortion. The church uh, is this. And they had no understanding at all about what gives the church life. They had no understanding. They had no understanding of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ at all, the gift of the Holy Spirit, Pentecost, any of this stuff. All they knew was a handful of teachings that they disagreed with, okay? And that's not necessarily because the church was doing a bad job and wherever they were at. It also is maybe they just didn't have ears to hear. So there are a lot of different dimensions. We're not here to just get easy solutions. We're just looking for insights, okay? Uh, lastly, people leave their church due to a warped view of God. Okay, how many of you have ever heard of the phrase, 
moralistic therapeutic deism. You ever heard that phrase? <laughs> yes, the theology nerds in the front row. Good, good on you. <laughs> moralistic therapeutic deism. You know what deism is? Or most of our founding fathers were deists, right? Do you know what that is? Deism as opposed to theism. Theism is hopefully all of you, or else you're in the wrong class. Uh, theism means we believe in one God who is a personal God. He can know you personally. You can know him personally, right? Yes, tri-personal, Trinitarian God, but we believe in a personal God who can know and be known, okay? Deism is essentially the blind uh, watchmaker. God wound up the universe, gave it its laws, set it all in motion, then he, then he left. There's no miracles. There's no resurrection from the dead. There's no eternal life. It's just a materialistic, mechanistic universe, this was very powerful after the Protestant Reformation, 100 years of war, after all the Christians killing each other in the name of Jesus, right? When that settled down, all the original French Calvinist Protestants, after about a generation or two generations later, they were deists living in Denmark. They had fled France because they were persecuted there. But deism, with a D, not with a TH, deism essentially is God is like the watchmaker. He built it, he wound it up, and he's done, right? My kind of idea is, then why build it in the first place? But... That is deism. God is not, does not have a plan for my life. I have the plans. Modern therapeutic deism. Okay, moralistic therapeutic deism. Number one, so God exists. Yay, I believe in God, right? He exists. He created the world. The world is orderly. The world is knowable. The world is good. That's awesome. He watches over us in some sort of manner, but he's not really personal. He's more like the force. This power that I can draw on, right? You hear this when you hear people say, like, speak your truth into the universe, and the universe is going to bless you. And it's like, the universe is nothing but whirling atoms. It doesn't care who you are, but I digress. God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other. That's the whole point. It's moralistic, right? Do we, like, why believe in Jesus Christ so I can be a good person? No. No, that is not why we believe in Jesus Christ. That is a side effect of why we believe in Jesus Christ. We believe in Jesus Christ because he's the eternal son of God who came and died for us and rose for us and we can know him and belong to his kingdom. That we can be filled with his divine life, right? But what happened in Christianity is we just reduced it to a moral system and that's it. It is a moral system, but it's not just a moral system. Jesus, morality-wise, didn't teach a lot of new things. The thing that he taught that was new was him, as the center of our lives. So again, is he the center of your life or is he just a really important branch off of your life? Is he, are you a branch off his life or is he a branch off your life? So God does not just want us to be fair to each other. He wants us to be a new kind of person. Number three, God as a cosmic therapist. Okay, what does this mean? God wants me to feel good about myself all the time and in every way. That is not true. Like, see, there's a quote from C.S. Lewis that Brandon Vaught draws on, which is like God as the uh, senile grandfather rather than your father, meaning like, oh, just let the kids do their thing. They're going to be all right. Like, you know, uh, if, if it makes them happy, it can't be that bad. That's a Cheryl Crow song. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the central goal of life is for me to feel good about myself. That is not true. That is not true. That is the biggest lie. Somewhere, I heard this person say this. They said, Somewhere in the American history, we replace the word, the pursuit of happiness with the word comfort. And it's, that's very true. Like we travel, we want to maintain that four star, five star comfort level and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, okay, but you know, ships are safe in harbor, but they weren't meant for the harbor, were they? They were meant for the open sea, right? God loves you 
into existence so that you can carry out his will on earth, bring his kingdom to the far corners. Some of you have to engage in a much more active cooperation in God spreading his kingdom. You know, some of you are there to fund it. Some of you are there to go on it. Everyone is there to be a part of it, right? But some of us are like, yeah, but that makes me uncomfortable. It's like, yeah, well, God isn't here to make you comfortable, right? And then you have the great Christian cliche that I use all the time. God came to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable, right? And we don't want him to do this. But if you believe that God exists as essentially he's watching over human life, right? He wants people to be nice and he wants me to live my best life now, right? Then this is that moral therapeutic deism that we're talking about. God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. You ever pray to God, when your life gets out of control, the answer should be, yup, all the time. Do you only do that? Do you only pray to God when your life is out of control? Your answer needs to be, well, yeah, well, today, but tomorrow I won't, right? <laughs> right? Tomorrow I won't. When's the best time to plant an oak tree? 25 years ago. When's the second best time? Today. Okay, when's the best time to have a prayer life? 25 years ago. For them, not for you. Then you'd be a fetus. Uh, <laughs> when's the second best time? Today, right? Today. Today, you begin your prayer life, your words, your listening to the voice of God in your life. A God who just wants us to earn our way to heaven. Good people go to heaven when they die. No, they don't. Forgiven people do. Okay? What does it mean? And I say this, so many Catholics are Pelagian heretics, right? <laughs> what is, who is Pelagius? Pelagius was uh, a priest and a theologian in the 5th century who was the number one opponent to St. Augustine. Pro tip, if you're ever, ever arguing with a guy whose first name starts with ST period, you already lost the argument. St. Augustine argued with this guy, and it is what gave us our theology of grace was the argument, the dispute with Pelagius, who said Adam and Eve's fall is not predicated to us. It's just a bad example. Jesus is our savior, not because he rescued us from some fallen state, but because he gave us a good example. So all we need to do is white knuckle it, right? Get some more willpower and be better. And that's it. And St. Augustine said, you have no idea what grace means. And Pelagius was condemned. And if you want to reduce Pelagius' argument, it's I earn my way to heaven. Okay. How many Catholics feel like that is what the church teaches? Literally, one of my favorite publishers publishes old books and retitles them. And one of the titles they gave was Earning Your Way to Heaven. And I was like, well, that's not misleading, right? That's not at all. Like, so here's my stupid analogy. It's stupid. I know it's stupid. I know it is, but it works. Okay, there's a guy, his name's Aquaman. You ever heard of Aquaman, right? He can live, he's a superhero. He lives, comes from the magical undersea kingdom of Atlantis. He lives on earth, he can live underwater. Imagine he grabs you by the hand, takes you to his magical undersea kingdom. What do you do when Aquaman invites you to this magical undersea kingdom? The answer is you say yes, okay? You say yes, takes you by the hand, goes underwater. Where are you in two minutes? Doesn't matter where you are under the ocean, you did, right? <laughs> Why? Because you don't have the ability to live underwater, okay? Now, for some of you who are comic book movie nerds, this resonates for everyone else in the room besides Kevin. It does not resonate, okay? So the idea is this. Grace equips us for living a certain kind of life. Without grace, we are incapable of living that kind of life. In order to give us this grace, Christ had to take away our sin and adopt us by his blood shed from the cross and his resurrection. It's a twofer. You don't just get the one without the other. 
His resurrection means he conquered the very thing that we hate and are afraid of the most, right? Hebrews chapter two, since children, since the children shared in flesh and blood, he likewise shared in them so that by death, he might conquer the one who held us in bondage, namely through fear of death all the days of our life, right? Jesus conquered not just death, but because I'm in him, he conquered my fear of death, right? And that's what Saint, or the, whoever the author of Hebrews is, I think St. Paul, that was his argument, that Christ's death and resurrection conquered the fear of death in humanity, which enslaved us and caused us to live selfishly, sinfully, okay? So within this purview, we don't just want to be good enough for God. What does it mean to share in God's eternal life? Heaven is not a pleasure banquet. That's what we think of when we think of, I'm trying to, I don't know why I'm yelling at you. <laughs> <laughs> When we think of heaven and we reduce it to a place where I'm subjectively satisfied and that's it, right? We have a non-Christian view of heaven. Can anyone think of a religion where the objective of the afterlife is to overindulge in pleasures forever? Exactly, okay? Exactly, it is Islam. That is an Islamic view of heaven. That is not a Christian view of heaven, okay? I'm not knocking Islam. They will be the first to tell you that. Right? The idea of heaven, of paradise, is your soul and body united to the Trinity forever. An eternity of life-giving love. It'll never grow old, stale, or boring. How do you earn that? How do I earn that? Okay, God, I didn't steal today, so give me eternity. Right? It doesn't work that way. But it is a gift. For the free gift, St. Paul says in Romans chapter 5, is not like the trespass. For as one man's disobedience brought sin and death onto humanity, so too by one man's obedience did life and grace come to everybody. And so what we want to do is we want to realize that heaven, salvation, right, means being united to God forever. That's what salvation, it's not going to the clouds, it's not living inside of a painting uh, like in the movie, What Dreams May Come, right? Those are beautiful visions, but they are so partial, it's sad. It is eternal union with God forever, a joy that never ends. Why does that matter? Because we can start that now. Heaven begins now. If it's just a pleasure banquet, I can get a little taste of pleasure, but let's be honest, you eat enough Snickers, you get sick. You pound down enough donuts, you feel gross, right? <laughs> no, you don't. You don't ever get sick from me. <laughs> You drink enough alcohol, horrible things happen to you, right? But, but this notion of if it's not just a pleasure banquet that I'm trying to fill up, right? But I mean, that's why the Bible says that the eye filled with seeing or the ear with hearing. Like, no, you, just because you see something beautiful doesn't mean, well, I can pluck out my eyeballs. Because you and I both know that Axl Rose from Guns N' Roses was right. I used to do a little and the little wasn't doing, so the little got more and more. Pleasures own you when you give yourself up to them. So what you need to love is something that transcends you, your very existence. In fact, the sum total of all created realities is what God has called you to love. Something even greater than that. How do you earn that? You can't, but you can receive it. You can't earn it, but you can receive it. You ever have a kid, think about like a Christmas where you give a present to an entitled brat. Have you ever seen that happen or do it yourself, right? Like you give them, and they don't receive a gift, do they? They take it right? And they don't say thank you. They just stomp off and go play. It's not big enough. It's not what I wanted, right? It's the wrong color. And you're like, oh, I choked this kid, right? So maybe again, anger issues. But the idea of at the core is an entitled heart cannot produce gratitude. 
The grateful heart is grateful because it knows it could never get that itself on its own, right? That's the true gratefulness, right? I can't do this on my own. It's not that I'm weak. It's that it exists entirely beyond me, right? It's a gift that I need in order to live the divine life. That's what grace is. So we need to realize in our own hearts, often we've embraced a false vision of what God wants for our life. What he wants for our life is union with him forever. So guess what? If this person who has fallen away from the church and you now know that the goal of this earthly life is to be united to God forever, then you can start praying for that to happen in their life right now. You can be the intercessor, the one who stands in the gap between where they are and where they should be. And you begin to pray and you begin to call on the name of the Lord over and over and you annoy God like Abraham before interceding before Sodom, right? Remember that story? What if there's a hundred righteous people? Would you save the city for a hundred? Okay. What about 50? Okay. What about 40? Okay. What about 30? What about 20? What about 10? What about five? Right? And what happens? God destroys the city because there's not even five righteous people. That's the storyline. But imagine where he would have gone next if he so dared. What, if, what about one? Would you save the people for one righteous man? That's what he did in Christ Jesus. He saved the people because of one righteous man who did not succumb to disobedience, but through his obedience said an absolute yes all the way to the cross. But that yes liberated all of humanity from death, okay? So from that trajectory, we know that we can stand in the gap between where they are and where they should be, and we can begin to call down the Holy Spirit. We can begin right now calling down the Holy Spirit for that person that we are here for, or those people. And what we are doing is we are using and relying on and calling down the grace that we have by virtue of baptism. You are priest, prophet, and king. Start acting like it, right? Start acting like the prophets that Christ baptized you to be. And what we do is we call down the name of the Lord. We call down his power like Elijah surrounded by the prophets of Baal because our kids are surrounded by the prophets of Baal. They are overwhelmed and outnumbered, but God plus you is greater than any army this world can foster. So this is what we do. But here's the problem. You can't do it alone. We get discouraged, don't we? Especially when we have that awful conversation that ends in yelling or why not? And we feel like we're badgering and we're nagging. We're like, come on, right? What Christ wants to do in these times, what he can do. I'm not saying he's doing this to you, but he can use this moment to begin to soften our hearts. And not just soften our hearts for our child or our brother or our neighbor, but to soften our hearts for him. That what we call being a good Catholic isn't actually enough. And he wants to go even deeper into the soil of your heart. And he wants to make you saints. Okay? So that's the deeper part. God can use even the brokenhearted ones, right? And you might have your heart broken once you see your kids Sunday after Sunday, not go to church, right? Not live and respond and vote the way you think they should, whatever it might be. But all is not lost because you're standing in the gap and now we are standing in the gap with each other. Amen? Amen. Okay. Two people in the name of the Lord Jesus gathered together, bring his presence. Why did he say that? Wherever two or three are gathered in my name, I am present among them. Why did he say that? Because community manifests his divine life in a unique way that solitude cannot do on its own. Why? Because it is not good for man to be alone. So sometimes we need to get alone and be alone with God in order to address a lot of things going on in our own lives and maybe to hear the voice of the Lord a little bit better, but there are other times when God has called us into community. 
We don't want to share this part of our lives. Some of us in this room, and I know this from the conversations I've had with you and people like you, that you're embarrassed that maybe your child has gone away. Maybe what did I do wrong? Maybe you did a ton of things wrong. Maybe you did nothing wrong. But I know a God who is bigger than the wrongness that we have committed, right? Potentially, right? So we can stop beating ourselves up over it and we can start living as if today is a new day that the Lord Jesus has called me to, to enter into that prophetic office. I am here to call down in the name of the Lord, his power into my life and into their life. And I'm gonna stand in the gap, not just for my child, my brother, my sister, my neighbor, my friend, but also for the other people in this room. Now, maybe you've seen each other's faces at mass. Maybe some of you are friends, but most of you probably aren't friends. You see each other at mass. Maybe you recognize people vaguely or whatever. But now is the time to begin to intercede for one another. So here's the deal. As we go forth from this class, every single day, I'm not gonna ask you how your prayers went last week, but every single day until the end of this class, including when we skip class and go to a bar, every single day you are to pray for the return of whoever you're here for and for those of your class, right? We are in this together as Zac Efron reminded us in High School Musical 1. We are all in this together. Okay, seriously, you start praying, crazy things can happen, right? Here's a story of intercessory prayer. I walk the church when it's less hot outside and I pray. And uh, I used to pray for when I started the RCIA, I was terrified. I should not have been in charge. So I start walking. I'm like, Lord God, anyone you want to bring here, anyone you want to bring here. Then I walk in and Deacon Tom Vignair is when he was still working. He goes, Mike, Mike, I want you to come in here, meet this interesting gentleman. So I walk in there. I was like, July. So I walk in. And that's my impression. Deacon. So I walk in there and there's this Hindu Indian gentleman and he's sitting there. And he's like, well, he's like, tell me your story. And he goes, well, I worked down at NASA. I was driving home and I heard God say, go to St. Anthony of Padua and become Catholic. <laughs> so then I tell him about RCIA and he's like, oh, it's on Sundays. No, I work on Sundays. And he got and left. And I was like, please go to like a church in Pearland or something. Like there's so many churches down there. So eventually he did. But like these stories, you're like just out of the blue, out of the blue. And I think that story, like we had this other woman who was an Anglican and she was, she went to the cathedral church, Our Lady of Walsingham, and she went to this and she was struggling and she really loved her Anglican church, but she felt like the Eucharist was real. And then one day she just heard God say, drive now to St. Anthony's, right? And she came in and she sat down at my desk and she became Catholic, you know, four months later, right? Now God works in mysterious ways. Sometimes he works in painfully obvious ways to remind us that he's still the one who works. So what we need to do is trust in the prophetic office that you have been baptized and most of you confirmed in. And if you haven't been confirmed, our classes start in September for adult confirmation. And we want to bring you into the fullness, right? We just want to unleash the grace of Jesus Christ in our lives. Amen? Amen. I am not the Savior. I am not the Savior. Who is? Jesus. Doesn't that name sound so much better now when we think about it this way? Okay, five big myths about falling away Catholics. Myth number one, they'll eventually come back when they get married or have kids. G.K. Chesterton called that the golden thread, right? It's that golden thread that attaches to their toe from confirmation, and then they wander, and they go into the highways and byways, but now they're like, wow, I need to settle down and have kids. And then he says, pulling on that thread, bringing it back to church. Why did that happen so successfully? Well, the idea of overcoming being 23, right? Uh, the idea of marriage, extending your life with one other person, there's a lot involved in that. And all of a sudden, marriage makes one think, 
I gotta, I gotta get my life together. I don't know about y'all, but I was loving that bachelor lifestyle without regard to any other human person. It was, it was so good. I miss it so much. But <laughs> when I fell in love with Shannon and then stopped breaking up with her five or six times, uh, and we decided to get married, we were gonna get like everything had to change, or so many things had to change, right? So many things had to change for the better, right? And so the idea is you start thinking about really big things, not just the next thing, right? And that's why marriage pulls you back. But what are we finding? That's a myth. As young adults increasingly delay marriage and children, the odds are low that they'll return because of those events. I mean, you know the statistics if you're in the pro-life movement at all, right? The negative decline of the birth rate in the Western civilization means that there are real adults who are really not having kids in massive numbers, right? If they think that marriage is nothing other than the domestic arrangement of two people who really, really, really like each other, like, like, like each other, and it's not the union of two lives, a synthesis to bring forth children for the procreation education of kids, if they actually believe that, then guess what? Any domestic relationship will do. Why do I need a piece of paper to tell me that I love you? And it's like, because it's not about the piece of paper, right? It's about two lives being stitched together into one. And that piece of paper is a public witness of that life being stitched together into one. Your bank accounts, your last name, all the things, right? But they're not doing that. So if they're not doing that, it becomes very difficult. Now, I will say this. Uh, our church has become, since COVID, like the world center of marriage preparation. Before COVID, we have 52 weddings, 50, 52 weddings a year. And a couple's in the pipeline, right? It's around that number, sometimes a little higher, sometimes a little lower. Now we have over 100, we have, yeah, give or take. And it's insane. And we're getting calls every single day because certain parishes, they're not back yet. They're not, they'll do the wedding, but they won't do the formation. And it's like, how do you do a wedding without formation? They're like, well, go find it. We recommend St. Anthony's. So we have all these people in the pipeline. And I'm like, how do we, how do, we do this? How do, the business is good. Dear God, dear God, send more volunteers. Uh, <laughs> But so you start to think about this, what are we trying to do as hard and as strong as possible? We're trying to put the sacrament of matrimony back into marriage, as big a way as possible, put the cross in the center. And it's funny because when people encounter Christ in the context of their very human and beautiful love, all of a sudden they realize a need for the sacraments, okay? Do you think places are inculcating that? I had this one guy in Chicago, wants to become, he's baptized Catholic, never really raised Catholic, no confession, communion, or confirmation, the big C's. So I say to him, so he says, well, how do I get this stuff? And I said, well, there's no canonical thing called first holy communion. That's like a preparation thing. There's nothing in the code of canon law. Just as the code of canon law, if your pastor thinks you're ready or someone he delegates, then you can go and receive your first holy communion if you've attained the age of reason, right? So that's how we roll here, right? We do the classes and preparation to get you ready, right? But if you're an adult, that's all out the window. It's like, okay, I can learn and I can go. And he's like, no, they want $500 for First Communion classes and they take a year. Then they want $500 for confirmation. I can't take them at the same time. So that's $1,000 in two years before I can even think about getting married in the church. And then I have to do marriage prep on top of that. And I was like, oh my goodness. Here we have a church that young people are trying to come to. And it's like, we're doing our best to push them away. So I told the guy that let's set up some Zoom calls and I'll bring you in. So um, yikes, yikes. Okay, so this is the problem. We need to address this. We need to start having good marriages that marriage becomes appealing. 
right? We need to talk about marriage. We need to love marriage, right? We need to live this life because they're, I mean, have you seen all the horror movies that are just about children? Like people legitimately have a, it's part of the zeitgeist. There's a phobia of children, right? And that's scary to me. There's tons of horror movies being made now. Just type in Annabelle into your browser. Okay. (laughs) I took them to mass and sent them to Catholic schools. That should have been enough, right? If our, this is back in like the 20s, yeah, because you had your aunts and uncles all living next door to you, you all believe the same thing, the person down the street believes, they had this thing called decency, right? They, you know, like, they did not have a massive pornographic empire that your children have access to via their iPhone that they've had in their pocket since they were a fetus. Like, this is what they're up against. We are surrounded by the prophets of Baal. And all they want is sacrifices, right? And so what we need to do is realize, now some of y'all in this room, or maybe other people, right? You did all the things that you could do, right? But now's the time that we need to do it for other people in the church, okay? So I need you to really think, in this room, to really think about volunteering for children's faith formation, for youth ministry. I need you to really think about that because if God is calling you into those things, even supporting on the periphery, maybe not a core member or teacher, but something else, because you need to help other parents get the truth into their kid's life by loving them, supporting them, by being that community around them. Uh, simply moving through Catholic institutions doesn't ensure that a young person encounters the Lord or develops a strong personal faith. Half those institutions don't even teach the Catholic faith. More than half, especially if you're talking about Catholic universities, right? They don't. Maybe a, the philosophy department does, but the theology department doesn't in most of those cases, Right? And it is scary that parents have, like, especially Catholic colleges, shelled out big bucks. Well, that my kids got, you know, X amount of years of Catholic education. And it's like, in the name of the Catholic Church, they got something different. They got the world in a, in a, in a big way. So you can outsource a lot of stuff. Your kids, that swing, the pitch, uh, weightlifting. You can outsource technical skill. You cannot outsource a life of faith. You cannot. It can only be caught Okay, they have to see it through witness. For so many people who are directly hurt by the church, right? Who I, and I have a friend who became a priest even though he was uh, horribly, horribly mistreated by uh, the pastor of his church growing up. The biggest thing he said is, you know, obviously I can forgive them because I'm in a place of Christian maturity now. He's like, but what I need now, like before you come to that place of maturity, the thing along that journey is prayers for healing. Right, that is a moment of healing that hopefully from that forgiveness can come. And forgiveness does not equal permission. A lot of times we withhold our forgiveness because we make it seem like it says what you did to me, I'm okay with. That's not what forgiveness is, right? So uh, yeah, so what we do is we pray intensely for healing because there's no, I mean, good Lord. They left because of me, it's all my fault. Now, some of y'all, you, you, you got a huge burden on your back. Okay, come to me, all of you who are weary, and I will give you rest, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Okay, that's what Christ says. That's not me. My, I'm very wearisome, but Christ is coming to take your weariness away from you, right? Like we said, a person ultimately leaves because they are not rooted in a personal relationship with Christ. No matter how much you did to encourage this, it is their decision whether or not to foster that relationship. I remember the first time I walked in on my dad kneeling and praying his prayers before bedtime as a teenager. I still can see it in my head. Like, this wasn't family prayer. This wasn't anything forced. This wasn't prescripted. My dad is a man of prayer. 
I remember finding out that my dad hadn't eaten in like a week because he was fasting for the conversion of my brother who was lost in a world of pretty hardcore drugs, right? So the idea of this is it's your, your kids have freedom. They're persons. They can make choices, and we can kick ourselves. If, you know, one, one thing that a, an individual used to say to me was, I wish I had my conversion when I was 20 and not when I was 40. Because if I had it when I was 20, my kid would still be Catholic. It's like, maybe. Why don't you go talk to all the people who are grieving over, you know, since their 20s who have been grieving over their kids? Like, maybe. You don't know. Persons are persons, okay? And they can choose, they can deal, they cannot deal, and their lives take them in pretty crazy ways. But what we want to remind everyone is, I am not the Savior. <laughs> Jesus is the Savior. Okay. If we say it enough times, it becomes true, right? Uh, number four, they won't listen to me. It's just impossible to have a discussion about faith. All right. Now, I do, I'm going to add a personal caveat here. I mean, like, sometimes when we say having a discussion about faith, we're really talking about these peripheral things in our lives that we make the center, even though they're not the center. Instead of talking about Jesus Christ, instead of talking about God, what do we talk about? We talk about, oh, did you see that sunset? God is real. How come you not believe in him? You need to have more faith, you little, right? Like things like that happen all the time. I had a woman walk up to me and go, look at this miraculous image. And I thought it was a photo of Our Lady Guadalupe. So I go and look at it and it's her windshield. And it was the sunset hitting the dirt on her windshield. And she's like, there's a crucifix. There's a blessed mother. There's a bunch of angels. And I was like, okay, I'm not saying that that isn't, but I'm not going to go with you that it is. Now, here's the deal. If, her devotion, whatever. She might have a great devotion to the angels, Mary, all that stuff. Great. These are little sacramentals, little reminders. That's wonderful. But for people who are skeptics, doubters, and eye rollers towards the faith, that is the type of stuff that makes it say, welcome to Looney Tunes. Welcome to La La Land. Like, of course, it's a fairy tale. It's fantasy. Look at the stuff that you fixate on, right? And it's like, no, 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 no. Let me tell you about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the difference that makes, right? But many of us don't know how to have that conversation, do we? We're going to train you. I'm going to train you. I'm going to feed you baby birds, but we got to get there, okay? Your first goal should be to listen to them, not to talk at them. Your first goal should be to listen to them, not to talk at them. Through listening, conversations will start to bear fruit. If they left and are bitter, they are hurting. So listen to them. If they are not bitter, they will even more likely appreciate you asking questions and wanting to understand them better. Who doesn't want to be understood better, right? What is the prayer of St. Francis? To understand rather than to be understood. Exactly. So it's like, okay, I yearn for everyone to look at me, love me, right? Love me, right? I'm a narcissist with low self-esteem, right? So I yearn to be the center of everyone's life. But what happens when I stop that and I make you the center, right, of the conversation? What's going on in your life? How are you doing, right? What happens is that person feels important. What is the phrase we were sharing earlier? Seen, known, and loved. Everyone wants to be seen, known, and loved. When you hear them, you can see them authentically, right? That's why that's a constant part of, of this. You're going to hear this. You're going to hear this so much when we go past the game plan. Brandon Vought literally lays out discussion starters. How do you have those? Because that's the hardest part for a lot of us in this room. You're like, what do I say at Thanksgiving dinner when we're alone? Like, what, what words come out of my mouth? So... <laughs> Pope Francis, huh? Like, what, what do we say, right? He gives you a script. This is like straight out of, like, a Wall Street thing. Like, just read the script over the phone, close the deal. No, it's not automatic like that, but it helps get conversations 
going. We often don't know the right words to say. Here's some examples, and we're going to go through them together. But if you think about this, if they're not bitter, then they'll be happy to be heard, right? And so our prayer needs to be, even though I want to be the center of attention by my own flesh, right? I'm going to subordinate that to the will of Jesus Christ, and I'm going to listen to them. I'm going to make them the center. Okay, it's hopeless. How many of y'all ever felt that way? How many of y'all ever, yeah, yeah. The many conversations with some of y'all in this room. It's never hopeless. No matter what happens, my child is never coming back to the church. It's never hopeless. God will never give up on your child, and neither should you. And neither are we. Neither are we. I don't know the measure of hurt and how much you're suffering and how much it bothers you or how much you think about it or it keeps you up at night. But I will say this, right? You do not suffer alone. The people in this room are going through exactly or similarly what you're going through. So if we can unite together in prayer and actually pray for the restoration of those who have left the church, we can begin to affect change in a real way in each other's life. All right, we're going to take a brief break so that we can hear a word from the fine folks at Ascension, and we'll be right back. Okay, here's the gut check right here, because if nothing changes, nothing changes. Do you want to be holy? And do you want to be an instrument of renewal in this world? And if so, do you believe it's possible? Do you know what it looks like? Do you know where to begin? Because if nothing changes, nothing changes. My name is Father Mark Mary. I'm a Franciscan friar of the Renewal. And I wrote a book called Habits for Holiness. And it pulls from over 800 years of Franciscan tradition, wisdom, and experience of radical and total discipleship in the midst of the world, but in a way which begins with little steps and works not only for religion, not only for priests, but for everybody. The change you desire is possible. The conversion you desire is possible. The renewal you desire is possible. The healing you desire is possible. And it begins with little steps. So to guide you on your way and to help you make the next best step of renewal in your life, I'd invite you to pick up a copy of my book, Habits for Holiness. God bless you. We can begin to bring healing, right? So think, think about, you know, you shared about your parents and, and the need for, for healing. We don't just want them going to Mass on Sunday and not being healed, right? Too often we reduce being Catholic to going to Mass on my Sunday obligation, Holy Days of Obligation. That's a part of it, don't get me wrong, but the Vatican II and Sacrosanctum Concilium, which is the document on the liturgy, says the sacred liturgy is the source and summit of our faith, but it does not exhaust all that it means to live a Christian life. So for some of you, the avenue, the pathway that's going to bring your child, your friend, whomever home might be works of justice, works of mercy, works of charity. It might be truth, right? I mean, can I tell you how weird it is to watch the YouTubes of the most unlikely people uniting against what we call woke culture is hardcore scientific atheists and Christians who are defending the reality of truth today, right? It's bizarre. It's bizarre. And the more I watch it, the more I laugh. Like there's this guy who's an ex-Catholic, who's a hardcore, what we call new atheist, loves trashing Christians. And he was at a national Baptist summit called Sovereign Nations. And he's giving all these addresses on how to combat this in your denomination, your church. And it's like, because truth matters. And it's weird for me to stand up here and say, truth matters to a bunch of Christians. But now I see that truth matters to you as much as it does to me as a scientist, right? It's amazing that when we think people are farthest from God, 
It's often like they're doing a, doing a loop in the cul-de-sac and it's like, oh no, they're furthest from him. But we don't see that behind the beautiful manicured trees in your woodlands, uh, uh, you know, they, that they're actually coming back around, but it's a different road, right? They're coming back and it, they might've left because of a perceived whatever, but they're coming back through a different avenue. And maybe it's not our avenue. And that's why it's hard for us to see it, right? It's hard for us to see it because we want people to have the same spirituality we do because it works for us. And we love it and we know it, but maybe it's not going to work for them. The other thing is this, like going back to what I was saying, like we don't just want his parents coming back to church and going to mass. We desire for them interior healing of the legitimate hurts that they suffered when they were children, right? We want that healing for them, right? And so if we want that healing, then that's what we need to be praying for and working for and sacrificing for because we have the grace of Christ. We got the gills, but we're afraid to go into the water. We have the baptismal, someone should have tweeted that. We have the baptismal grace, right? We have the power, but we're afraid to use it. We're too timid. Christ did not give you a spirit of timidity to fall back into fear, but rather gave you the spirit of adoption whereby you can cry out, Abba, Father. But all we want to do is be comfortable. And Christ is asking, get out of the harbor and get out into the open seas because that's when you know my grace is the thing that moves the sails. There's a lot of water and sea analogies in this talk today, so we're going to wrap up. <laughs> it is never hopeless. As long as your heart still beats, as long as their heart still beats, it's not hopeless. As long as their heart still beats, it is not hopeless. Today I was in a meeting with Father Tom, Father David Huss, Barbara Beale, and, and Janine and myself. We're the leadership team. We're doing our parish business meeting, and we're going through all these things. And uh, Jerry had called me right before the meeting, so it was on my mind. I said, oh, guys, Father David, you need to get trained to do prison ministry. Okay, so I start sharing a couple stories about prison ministry, and it's like, and Father Tom goes, oh, you're going to love going to Ad Seg and hearing those confessions, because that was a big thing. We got, how many, 13 guys now that want, so these are guys on what we would call solitary, right? Ad Seg, administrative segregation. 13 of them in two blocks out of the six or so have asked for the sacrament of confession. Okay, so they want to go to confession. So the last time we had 12 people, and it was like four and a half, five hours worth to hear their confessions, right? We don't know the means and methods. We don't know how God is going to bring people home, right? Some of those men, right, in there, the way God brought them home was through prison, right? And we might think, it's all over. Now their lives are ruined. They're in prison, and they're able to do more good for other souls in there than they would have out here. So we don't know. Yeah, it might not be your mom and dad's dream for their baby boy to be like, you do such good ministry in jail. <laughs> but I'm going to tell you something. The men that I have worked with, the men that I have worked with, the lives we've seen convert are nothing short of miraculous. And I, I'm so sad for all of you don't do prison ministry, nor do exorcism ministry, because you don't see the right hand of God working in power. Right? I saw it. We saw it when... This one individual who's a pagan priest in the prison had an instantaneous conversion to Christ in front of all of us, right? Like I get to see it, God bless you. I get to see it happening and I yearn for that. And when you see them converting, you think, well, surely my you know, child or my brother or whatever can come home. If they can come home, if they can come home, if that Yakuza mafia guy kneeling, going to confession can come home. And he was in the Japanese mafia. If he can come home, it's not hopeless, is it? So I want you to say this out loud. Yes, I'm doing this again. It is not hopeless. It is not hopeless. Not because, you, don't, don't repeat this part. Not because, <laughs> I do too much youth ministry where all the kids are like, not nah, because. No, okay. 
It is not hopeless, not because you're perfect, you're amazing, you got all the right answers. You don't. Have you seen you? You're a mess. <laughs> but you worship a God who took our mess. And he didn't hesitate to take it. I love my own even to the end. Okay, that's the reason why I teach this class. Because Christian hope begins where human hope ends. We have confidence, not in ourselves and our own sick abilities to convince everyone. We have confidence, bold confidence, that he can accomplish the good work that he has begun in them. Amen? Amen. Okay. I am not the Savior. I am not the Savior. Jesus is the Savior. There we go. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord Jesus Christ, we humble ourselves before you. We know that we are not the Savior. We do not have all the answers. But Jesus, we want to cooperate with your movements in their lives. You made us priest, prophet, and king, Jesus, by baptism, by washing our robes white in the blood of the lamb. You have called us into a life that is greater than we could ever make for ourselves. Jesus, you are the way, the truth, and the life. That's why the way to heaven is heaven, because you are the way. Help me to walk fully on the way. You know my sin, my selfishness, my mistakes. Point them out to me, Jesus. I give them to you. I surrender them to you. Jesus, I trust in you with all of my faults and failings. But Jesus, I give you this person or these people in my life. It breaks my heart, and I know it breaks your most sacred heart even more. As the catechism says of you, Lord Jesus, you loved us with a human heart, which is why we have a devotion to the sacred heart. So Jesus, out of our devotion to your most sacred heart, may we love them with your human and divine love. Jesus, you know their lives might be so seemingly complete to them. They got it made. They got the job, the skills to this. They got the friends. They got the cool apartment. They got the whatever. But they don't have you, Lord Jesus. Stir within our hearts a desire. A desire not to try to conquer them. No, give us a desire to conquer the false prophets of Baal who surround them, who whisper in their lives, you're all you need. You're sufficient without him. You don't need him. Jesus, give us the strength of Elijah so that we might cut them down, so that they might hear their own voice and your voice clearly. They've heard our voice, Lord Jesus, maybe too often. May we devote our time before the throne of your grace begging, and we ask all the angels and saints, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, to come and intercede for us with Jesus, our Savior, the one mediator between God and man, Jesus, with all your saints, we pray for these, your sons and daughters, your brothers and sisters, to come home into the heart of your Father. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses. All right, y'all, this was the end of this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope it was meaningful for you. Again, I'm going to encourage you to get Brandon Vaught's book, Return, How to Draw Your Child Back to the Church, and say a prayer for me and David as we try to coordinate our schedules this week while I'm on vacation. God bless y'all.